with no tricks tonight. Um, just wanted to ask before I say something um, what I would like to tidy up a little bit, bits I have left out or I feel I should um, clarify further. Before I would like to do that, I just wonder, are there maybe questions, something I can respond to, something that hasn't made it onto a note, although you've been copious with your notes to me this time. Um, uh, Or something I simply have not responded to, so this may be an opportunity to approach it. Obviously, if you don't, you risk that my talk gets longer, more complicated, and more arcane. Yeah. Did I not? Oh, yeah. Well, I hate the word, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a bad word. It's a it's a very tragic translation for something that is a precious commodity. Uh, I tend to refer to uh, what many people refer to as concentration. I tend to refer to that as stillness or calm or collectedness. So um, you will have heard the word samatha and samadhi a couple of times in the last week, and I. I hope I've made it clear that this is something desirable, useful, and uh, my um, visceral dislike against the word does not extend to the quality it sometimes denotes. So I just think it's an unfortunate term. In my head, it does um, connote what you do with a with a floor cloth, you know, concentrically squeeze the thing and kind of. Uh, and this is not what the Buddhist notion of samadhi is, you know, which means kind of unification of mind. It's not something you can, uh, by a forceful effort of will, produce. Uh, what you can produce with such a forceful effort of will is kind of um, headache. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you manage to force your mind uh, onto some object or onto some process or into some part of body, then generally such uh, a result is very short-lived. Yeah, I, I do not believe that the type of stillness the Buddha was um, advocating can be obtained by a direct effort of will. So my understanding is that the mind likes to find stillness if we allow the mind to be uh, in the right, looking at the right things for that stillness. So our task is not so much to make the mind still, but to bring it continually to something that is suitable as an object to develop such stillness in the mind. But there is a natural skill of the mind to become still if we stop agitating the mind by letting it seek for distraction or pleasure or gratification with things that make it temporarily happy but that actually preclude it from becoming still. So the discipline 
that's where the will comes in when we want to gain stillness seems to be not so much as to directly making the mind still or tightening it down or holding it down or focusing it hard but to studiously take it back to some suitable process or object like the breath and keep taking it back when it goes away just keep taking it back and that as much as it takes as long as it takes as often as it takes so that's where I think will comes in and discipline comes in and uh, continu- <coughs> continuity of effort comes in but the mind in the stillness the Buddha speaks of is, uh, is doing that on its own accord we cannot really force that we can prepare it we can it's like you know you plant your beans you kind of you you put in the steaks and then you put in the beans and then you water loosen the earth keep the snails off pick the weeds out but you can't really force the growth you know the beans will grow at their own speed you know by pulling at it it won't help yeah when they peek out so there is a the activity needed is planting, loosening earth, watering, protecting, you know, weeding. But the actual growth of it is something that is happening of of its own accord. Yeah. That is my firm conviction. I I hope this clarifies my and the response to some of your question around concentration. Yeah. Uh, there are some interesting terms the Buddha uses. So, obviously, the term <clears throat> samadhi, meaning that which is put together, some ada, yeah. Or the term uh, when it's a deep concentration is ekagata. It has become one-pointed, yeah, unified. Um, or uh, it is called. Um, Ekodibhava, meaning having become one. Yeah? I think, again, the word unification is probably the most beautiful and evocative for that quality of stillness. These are not things we can do. These are things we can prepare, and then they arise, and when they arise, we can support them, we can strengthen them, we can protect them, but we can't actually do it. Yeah. Well, the, they are quite different. They're both uh, canonical practices, as you know well. Um, gee, most of us here seem to think that sitting is the real thing. Yeah? Um, sitting receives more attention. We spend generally on retreats more time sitting. Um, and sitting in some way is more controlled. Yeah. We have less movement. 
we have our senses more guarded because our eyes are closed. So in many ways it seems easier to concentrate the mind. Here is the ugly word. Huh? Um, when we sit down. You know, because less is happening. Less movement, less visual contact, less outdoor uh, sensory impingements. And in some degree, to some degree this is true. You know, we are in a more kind of test tube situation when we sit still with eyes closed. Um, walking meditation is more challenging because it, has, uh, it, it asks us to be continually mindful or st- steady in our attentional focus on a chosen area, generally the feet or the touch sensations in the feet, all the while walking up and down, having our eyes open, so having motor sensations, having visual uh, impingements, and generally having more things going on at any one time because we obviously our eyes pick up things which subjectively gives the impression that it is more hard to concentrate the mind to more to make that mind kind of stay with one thing uh, that increased difficulty uh, also has a payoff which is often not understood. You know, the quality of the, of a, a stillness that is developed in walking is more resilient than the quality of stillness that is developed when sitting. Um, simply because the stillness that is resilient enough to withstand visual contact and motor sensations uh, as it comes from walking up and down is a quality that is highly mobile, it is highly applicable in our everyday lives. Because our everyday lives probably resemble the walking situation more than the sitting situation. In uh, some traditions, notably the Thai forest tradition, walking meditation is often the main practice. Many of the forest monasteries uh, have beautiful kept walking paths, some more short, some more long. Yeah, there are great, there's a great finesse going into the, the upkeep of your walking path. You know, how broad you like it, how long you like it, how soft you like it. Yeah. So it is a, a practice that is, you know, in the climate of north, north, northeast Thailand, where many of the forest monasteries are, which is a very hot area, often. Uh, the walking path is shaded. Yeah, it's either in, uh, it's, it's rarely covered, but it's generally in the forest. In Sri Lanka, you have well, often, often covered, so you have a, a a real nice track just behind your hut, usually or a few steps away, on which you spend hours. Yeah, and at night you put candles in there at each end, and you keep it meticulously clean so that if you have creepy crawlies uh, entering it, you know they can't hide, so you don't stand on them. And uh, during the daytime, often the walking path is more shaded and cool than sitting in your hut. You're less prone to sleepiness, you're less prone to lethargy, and it is a beautiful, very, after a while the mind gets very smooth and very soft, if you have an even, gentle movement. Many of us have found that when we learn stuff by heart that we know it more reliably when we have actually learned it by walking than when we've learned it by sitting down. Uh, for some strange reason when you do recite, and 
uh, often this is not an optimal situation. You know, people are sitting around, they're waiting till you finish, sometimes they cough, sometimes they botch. So it's generally, uh, there's a kind of expected, expectant situation when you're reciting, say, the discipline or so. Then there's a group of them around and you don't want to make mistakes. One of them is checking you with a book facing you. you know, and you're supposed to recite that uh, word proof. And he will butt in if you're not word proof. You know. So this is a situation in which you would like to be able to recall something quite accurately and quite speedily and with some reliance on your memory. And uh, many of us have found that we can do that a lot better if the learning process has taken place when walking. Yeah. Somehow the motor movement seems to help the memorizing faculty and it seems to be easier to not be distracted if there is movement or coughing. or yeah, One seems to be more resilient in one's collectedness upon a, a reciting task when that recitation has been practiced under the, the sort of the back and forth of a motion. Uh, I believe that we, we um, you know, we gain a type of dexterity in our mindfulness when we practice that in walking, which we don't easily get when we sit. And I have come to appreciate that, that fluidity or dexterity very much. It is a powerfully applicable quality of mindfulness that makes less demands upon control and stillness and complete safety. You know? So in many ways it is more everyday proof the kind of walking type mindfulness. That is my experience. Um, obviously, differing climbs have made walking less less attractive in this country, for example. Yeah. You know, these Tibetans have not made much of walking practice. Yeah. Japanese have made an indoors practice out of it. Yeah. And here in uh, much of my walking experience in this country, I've been a monk many years in this country before I went to Thailand. Um, it was basically a heroic thing, you know. You went out there and did it because you, you didn't want to be a slacker. Yeah, but it wasn't really a samatha exercise, you know, because you're out there with your blanket and the wind was in your face and it was cold and you know you trampled up and down a kind of grassy patch which was half frozen or so. It, it was a heroic thing, and I'm sure it has had its benefit when you know the kind of walking up and down a smoothly you know, cultivated Thai forest monastery path was a somewhat different experience. Yeah. Uh, it was um, subjectively more pleasurable to do it in Thailand than in England. But as you know, even here it can be clement, and even here people have powerful insights. They find themselves suddenly more aware of things they, they would kind of sit through here and not get a perspective on. But sometimes or something happens and they realize their response to it, a habitual response, which they just felt were, was normal for many years, and suddenly they actually notice how that voice comes in and what happens, and so. So I, I see people making powerful uh, insights, even in slowing down. Um, I never liked that slow Burmese stuff, never, never, and yet I confess it is very effective. It does very powerful things. It 
takes you out of your autopilot. It breaks down self-perceptions of solidity. It, it is a very powerful exercise. It's uh, dreadfully challenging for meditation teachers if that slow walking happens in front of your teacher door or so. <laughs> but I have no doubt in the efficiency of, say, slow walking. Um, forest tradition is not into slow walking. Ajahn Chah was um, laughing when he saw the kind of, you know, six-plus stages model uh, in Thailand, you would walk very slowly, but you would walk in a kind of fluid movement, you know, rather than break down the sequence of a step. Either way, it is likely if you do that, uh, something profound is going to happen. Yeah. And um, the Buddha praises walking meditation for a variety of reasons. Uh, Helps the digestion, <laughs> keeps you keeps you healthy. Uh, it's good against sleepiness. Uh, are some explicit, unexpected uh, benefits of walking meditation? Well, good. Let me say a few things of my own accord. First of all, I spoke about uh, stages, meditation practice in stages, um, or differing aspects is maybe more accurate way of phrasing this. I, I named some of them. Uh, I confess these are not canonical terms. These are, you will not find uh, canonical uh, passages speaking of those different aspects. So take them with a pinch of salt. They are definitely apocryphal teaching. But I do think they they um, they make a lot of sense, and it's easy to discern uh, their necessity. So the stage one, calming down. Stage two, learning to distance, learning to disidentify. Stage three, um, what we have distanced ourselves for, from, uh, slowly and respectfully, in a negotiated way, begin to investigate this. Yeah. So these are the ones I spoke of. There is a stage four, which I haven't spoken of, and I do not want to hold back on that one. It just didn't fit in this mor- uh, the morning I spoke of it. The fourth stage is, um, in many ways, it's a going out again yeah, and gaining a bigger perspective. On stage three, the work is very personal. It deals with this mind. It deals with this history. It deals with the conditioning of this being here. So... Inevitably, in stage three, if we want to understand more deeply what troubles us, what fascinates us, what we are besotted by, and what we are frightened of, this is a personal inquiry. This is an inquiry that takes us into the personal, our personal conditioning. It may take us into our uh, tendencies. It may take us into our history. It may take us into the psychological buildup of our self-construct. Yeah, self-constructs are basically things we do to protect us against pain. Yeah? Self, as uh, Buddhist psychology understands it, is a sort of convulsion against the pain we fear most or the pain we have experienced most. So much of ourself is organized around pain. 
It's organized around protecting us from the pain we have either dreaded or we have actually experienced. Yeah? So much around self is around the build-up of a defense system against what was experienced in our life as particularly threatening or as particularly hurtful. Which is a tragedy in itself, isn't it? If we, if we have to cook up a self, you know, we're going to cook it up on the, on the premises of what was actually bad in our life rather than what was good. You know? One could make a case for a self-construct that is based, let's say like the Indian traditions did it, you know, that said the self is happy, the self is eternal, that the self is truly my individual essence, and the self is identical with the Brahman, yeah? That's what the Upanishadic traditions, the, the, the Vedic traditions. Buddha's take on this was very, very different. He wasn't interested in what things were. He was interested in how things work. That's a very different position of trying to understand mind. So he was not interested in essences. He was not interested in whether Atman and Brahman were identical. He was interested in how it comes that we suffer and how it comes that we can uh, stop suffering. So in many ways he wasn't interested in a philosophical point of view which asked the question, what? What is something? Yeah? The quiditas of something, yeah? if you want to be philosophical about it. The Buddhist question was more a psychological question. How come did be- beings who are capable of being completely free, completely awake and completely happy, how come they suffer? What do they do to get there? And once they got there, what can they do to stop, <laughs> to stop being there? Yeah. Well, if they can make themselves suffering, what can they do to stop suffering? So this is the question he was basically interested in. Now, if you look at our notion of self, which is you're not... Generally, people don't have a solid notion of a soul or something that is in there that is truly unchanging. Most of us have a kind of a notion of there is me, uh, yeah, and uh, it, I exist somehow, and... You know, obviously I change a little bit, but basically it stays me, yeah? And if you look more closely at what gives this sense of me, the Buddha calls this I-making or my-making. Beautiful, beautiful words. Ahamkara, mamamkara. And this is what we would call selfing now, here. We self a little bit. I experience something and I identify with that, and that means I take what I experience to be myself. I take that to belong to myself. Yeah? If you want to use a psychological language, you would say, I relate in terms, I relate to something in terms of a self-object. I make a self-statement out of my experience of this object. So, I look at TV and I see people doing horrible things and my self-statement is, oh God, these horrible people, thank God I am not one of these horrible people because I find that horrible. It means I cannot be one of these people. Yeah. Gives me an, a, a little implicit feeling of superiority. It gives me a little implicit feeling of not being as bad as the people I read the news about. Yeah. That's why people do that. You know, we read news because implicitly we're always a little better off than those dreadful things that happen and those dreadful people that do these things to each other. So we kind of feel slightly better because uh, although the newsmakers feel bad, you know, this is a bad world and I hope I don't meet them, um, we implicitly feel we are not like that. 
The self-statement is, I am not like these people. Thank God I am not. Or, uh, thanks to my moral superiority, I would never do such a thing. Or Thank God I'm not as stupid as they are. Or, you know, we have all kinds of little implicit statements about which we, if we state it out loud, we wouldn't quite feel so confident. But implicitly, not quite verbalized in that way, we corroborate our notion of self in here. So we do a lot of that. And generally this revolves around some sort of fear, some sort of pain, some sort of threat we experience. Now we're not so original. The things that make us afraid, the things that make us uh, uh, frightened are not so very different from human beings. Some of us are more aware or more frightened by being left behind and some of them are more frightened of being abandoned and some of them are more frightened of being overwhelmed and eaten up and uh, some of them some of us are more afraid of just being too weak yeah so these are about fear patterns and one of these patterns you're likely to find somewhere at the core of your experience and much of your self-construct will be built around defending against what you fear most yeah what you have as your personal green kryptonite, yeah, if you want to use Superman language. So this is what your Atta is built about in Buddhist psychology. You identify with aspects of your experience, which then give you a feeling that you exist. The aspect of experience changes, and the feeling that you exist stays behind. Yeah? Obviously, because this is a fiction, you need an awful lot of maintenance work to keep that one up. So you need to keep identifying. You need to keep selfing. Yeah? You need to keep doing this because it's keep, it keeps running away from you. Yeah? It crumbles. You notice a couple of days silence and suddenly your self-notions start to crumble. Yeah? Do they really all hate me? None of them smiles at me. Nobody talks to me. Yeah? So... We're quite delicate. Our cells are quite delicate. Yeah? So they need a lot of upkeep. And uh, much of that upkeep is, is done quite habitually. Yeah? We, we give ourselves good feeling by doing the things we like doing, by doing the things we know how to do well, by doing the things which gratify our senses, by surrounding ourselves with people that uh, tell us what we like to hear, that are good at the things we are afraid of not being good at. Yeah, We have many, many strategies doing that. So this is a self-construct that is different from a soul, or it's different from the notion in uh, the Vedic traditions in India, but it is nevertheless a construct of which we secretly believe it is solid. Yeah, Everybody's going to die, but I am probably not going to die. Yeah? This is going to happen to other people. Yeah? So we, if we spell that out, obviously this is foolish to say, yeah? we know we're going to die, but part of us knows that, but most of us behaves as if we didn't know. Yeah? We can be quite at a variance of what we intellectually acknowledge, but actually performatively we, we do. Yeah? So there's quite a big gap. So that self is created... Um, generally to protect. It is created to protect us against uh, loss of meaning. It is created to protect us against the loss of solidity, safety and permanence. And it is created against the uh, understanding that things may not be as good as they are. 
So our self tries to buffer basically the three more marks of existence. It tries to buffer that things don't belong to me, that I'm not owning this world. I don't even own the things I eat. As soon as I eat something, which is about the most vivid act of appropriation, um, ingesting it, even then it doesn't really belong to me. It kind of belongs to a principle of nature that has certain rhythms and that has things I cannot even voluntarily influence. I can't really influence my digestive tract. I can influence my breath frequency and I can influence some some motor movements, but many, many of my body functions I can't influence digestion amongst them. So uh, the closer we look, the more obvious it becomes that we don't actually own the things we, we believe we own, or the, we, we don't own the things we, we enjoy. We don't own the things we, by law, seem to be owning. You know? We can't take them when we die. And Possession is a really strange concept if you look at it very, very closely. I'm, a, I'm aware that every legal code starts with property rights, and every civilization respects property. I'm aware of that, but... Still, if you look at it on an existential level, you can't really possess anything. And most things you want, anyway, are not things you can possess. And yet, this is a big number, isn't it? We derive so much safety, so much identity, so much um, um, gratification from from ownership, which is a complete fiction. If you look at it closely... So, stage four asks of us that what we have personally understood in in stage three by cruising through our biography, by cruising through our habit patterns, by cruising and acknowledging our tendencies and uh, ultimately resolving or um, undoing these tendencies or transforming them into wholesome ones, In stage four, we go back out and we recognize that our personal journey, our personal insight, actually have a universal, have a bigger application than just happening in our story. We recognize suddenly, looking over at her, we see, oh, I know that one, yeah. I got this slightly different, but this is now where, this is what's happening for her, yeah. I recognize in her expression of pain, my own experience with pain. I recognize in her fear, my own fear. I recognize, and I may be able to help her by having learned something about my own fear. I have learned not just something about myself, but I have learned something about fear. And that is applicable not just to my fears, but it may be applicable to other people's fears as well. Yeah? So, In stage four, it is as if we move out and somehow discern in the highly personalized investigation and exploration and path of stage three, we discern universal patterns around freedom, responsibility, conditionality, suffering, happiness, samadhi, things like that. We begin to discern patterns and we begin to be able to discern that even when it doesn't look like our own. So the knowledge we had uh, in stage three, which necessitated 
a highly personalized way of understanding what's going on becomes an understanding from a slightly bigger perspective that is no longer personal. It has received now, um, maybe you call it a transpersonal or a universal or, you know, it's bigger than just your story. You recognize that within your story there are patterns and these patterns, they occur in everybody's story. On the variance, slightly with different accents, but basically that's the pattern. You recognize, ah, that's the pattern. That's the pattern. So at that stage, you become quite useful to others. At that stage, it is possible to recognize bigger connections. You recognize what makes human beings free. You recognize what keeps human beings in bondage. You recognize... Uh, you know, crucial things, interdependence, causality. Uh, You recognize the motivation. You recognize um, degrees of of, um, awakening. You you begin to get a bigger picture, a picture that is no longer applicable (coughs) only to your story. So these four stages, I think, they make, they're all indispensable. Yeah. If you let one of these stages out in meditation, or if you let one of these aspects, which is maybe a better word, uh, then your meditation is likely to be deficient in some way. It is likely to not go the whole way. Yeah. You see, you may meditate and do things in your meditation that um, that help you part of the way, but then they don't help you further on. You, know? you may get stuck. If you want, we can get stuck in all, all of these four stages. Stage one, getting stuck, would mean you know we keep, we keep trying to be more still. There's something in us that says it's never still enough. I rarely meet people who really believe they have enough samadhi. You know? Even people who have excellent samadhi, they still believe, well, actually... You know, I was wobbly there. There was a shaky in-breath there, you know, about three-quarters of an hour of, into my first sitting. There was a shaky in-breath there, you know. So this is possible to get stuck in there. So you get the kind of OCD samatha junkies, you know. Uh, if, you're, um, if you're getting stuck on stage two, then you can't get safe enough, you know. Everything is still too risky. You're still not safe enough. You have to go further out, further out, further out. You know? You know? Basically, you want a spiritual legitimization of your dissociative pattern. You know? So you want to basically be living out there in your parallel dimension and life is just such a horror. So you want to really basically safely space out there you know? and stay there, possibly. So getting stuck in stage two means you basically have glorified your own dissociative patterns. Stage three, if you get stuck in this one, then you keep investigating dramas. You keep investigating personal psychology. It all is psychological. Uh, Stage four, if you try to figure out things from too universal a space, you may... um, you may actually have skipped parts of stage three. You kind of look at things sort of from an ultimatist point of view and miss out your own story in this and just kind of believe you can, you can uh, 
think yourself out of the out of the pot, yeah, by kind of by universally understanding person and in personality, but actually still be highly identified with an apparent viewer who sees it all very clearly and basically controls it. Or you may think you have really, you know, figured out Nagarjuna and emptiness, but in fact you're still uh, identified with your body, or you haven't even met your identification <coughs> with body, something. Yeah? So there's possibilities of getting stuck in any one of these aspects. And it generally takes some time and some help to get that sorted out. You know, we make mistakes when we meditate. How shouldn't we? And we, we like the things we already know. So most people end up in the wrong place, basically. <laughs> so, you know, it's no secret amongst meditation folks that, you know, generally you feel attracted by the thing you already resemble in some way. Yeah? The, the control freaks end up doing Burmese Mahasi stuff because you get very neat stages and very clear questions and everything is delineated. You get lots of interviews. Yeah? And the people who have difficulty with authority, they end up with Ajahn Chah because Ajahn Chah doesn't have a method. So I'm basically free. I, don't, I can't fail. I can't do anything wrong. So, yeah? So people who can't be clear or, you know, can't be doing detailed stuff or don't want to do detailed stuff because they <laughs> feel they would fail in this. They love talking because it's great. You just do, you know, wild, open awareness, you know. And, and, and people who are afraid of wild, open spaces, they love really, ch- you know, chasing Rupa Kalapas right down there. So you really go down into this Abhidhamma stuff, yeah? So... This is no secret amongst teachers. Basically, we feel attracted to the stuff which we in some way already resemble a little bit, which we recognize as valuable in our life. And, you know, that's how just, just, just how learning operates. All of these traditions are good. Every single one I've mentioned is excellent and has produced wonderful results and has legitimate uh, lineages and powerful teachers and teachings. And, you know, one day you kind of wake up and you realize you're, you basically need the other, actually. You need the one you always hated, you never understood, that always freaked you, that never made sense to you. So that's suddenly the one you realize, that's the one I need. So, you know, if your tradition is a genuine one, generally you will find even within that tradition something that caters to your needs, to your opposite needs than what initially attracted you into this. If I think of what attracted me to meditation, you know, this is <laughs> this is not very flattering, you know. I um, I was touched very early by this when I was fifteen. I was taught by Catholics to uh, meditate, who came highly inspired back home from Tizé. Uh, that was uh, that was a few years ago. Um, and um, I had a powerful stillness experience, which completely took me by surprise. It was as if a um, as if a door opened at the back of my mind, where I didn't know there was a door, and I just couldn't believe. Yeah, I didn't know how I got there, and I didn't know what to do with it. It just felt exquisite, at least at the beginning. And then I tried to get back there, and it felt miserable for quite some time because I couldn't get back there. And the people who helped me were gone. And it has taken me many years to, uh, in some way, find backtrack, not immediately into that state, but into a practice which 
led me on to uh, basically be interested in Buddhist teaching and in meditation. Um, and when I started to take up meditation, I just thought I would get more intelligent. You know, things would now, I would become just more and more clever, you know, and my memory would get better. And it, it was indeed getting better. You know, I suddenly could remember phone numbers more easily. And I had some uh, powerful states, but they were all quite arbitrary. They weren't particularly insightful. They were just kind of, in many, in many ways, exotic. And they had a sort of, uh, mystique about them, but they weren't connected to the most of the rest of my life. You know, it's taken many years to sort that one out. That some of the stuff I did in my life was pretty foolish, and it took quite some puzzling together of bits of insights before they started to feed back into my behavior, for example. Yeah? Although it was partly inspiring and partly fascinating, it was also hard work to patch this together. So sometimes, uh, our insights and our lives don't quite coalesce. It takes it takes work. And this work is not necessarily done on the meditation cushion or on the mat or on retreats. It's it's done in our lives, in our relationships, in the way we earn our living or or in the way we, we spend our invest our energies. So before you know, when you think of what gets you attracted to something, this is not necessarily what maintains you in there. If you've ever been in a long-term relationship, you probably know what I say. If you've taken up a job at 25 and you're still at it at 45, you probably have undergone some changes in this period. Your job has undergone some changes. Anything you do for any length of time will will provide you with that experience that your motives change, you change, the thing changes, and this needs reauthenticating somewhere along the process. So what gets us going on this path is not necessarily what sustains us, and it's not necessarily where we are 20 years later. So I would expect your notion of meditation to change as time goes on. Yeah. What started maybe off with just wishing to be a little more peaceful or get away from this distracted uh, monkey mind or uh, being able to count two breaths in one row. Uh, you know, after a few years of this, you may actually have another approach to your practice. You may think this is something to do with deepening your capacity to be here. Or you may have the feeling that this is something of a, a flourishing of a spiritual dimension in your being which was not overt when you started. You started maybe off with a notion of deficiency and suddenly you found actually, while trying to peg away at your deficiencies, you found there's actually something else happening you didn't even ask for. So we, we change. And the same holds true for, yeah, for meeting traditions or teachers or teachings. In many ways, you have to be more clever than the people who, who try to teach you. You have to make the decisions whether these people resemble you in some way, whether they, if they're authentic, they will probably tell you something about their own experience, what has worked for them or what works for them. But whether this works for you is up to your you know, intelligence. It's up to you, to your uh, this, this discernment to find out whether the people you you listen to are actually resembling you in some way or whether you resemble them whether um, 
And the best of teachings may, may not be the one you read, need right now. Yeah? And things get more complicated because you don't always need the same thing. Yeah? There's a time when you need somebody who tells you how to go about a good starting position, that tells you how it is done, you know, that gives you clear rules, baselines, patterns, and then tells you do it and don't waver, don't goof off, do it. Yeah? And then you do that for a while and then you need somebody else. And he says, okay, this is a valid way of doing this, but now look, this also is a valid way. Yeah? We all have done that. Yeah? We've all in some ways gone through patterns and schooling and uh, institutions. And we, developmentally, we need different things at different stages. So the choice is yours. You have to make that choice. No teacher will do that for you. It's very rare that you find people who do that, who are w- willing and capable of doing that. Yeah? The situation in which we live nowadays is kind of a spiritual supermarket situation with a flood of, you know, today we do iris diagnosis, tomorrow we do, you know, um, we cook oblianas and drink uh, kind of shamanic hooch. The day after we do a little bit of vipassana, then we channel angels, you know. <laughs> You have to make choices, yeah? You have to deepen this. And if you just hop, or if you do not get a perspective on your own needs and your own process, and if you can't pattern this in some way with intelligent inquiry, then you will just always hop to the last story, you know, the last show. The newest, the newest kid in town will get your attention, you know? The latest, the latest fad that is kind of being driven through the global villages is gonna is gonna be the thing that saves you. So you will need to get some perspective on your own process. That means needs, experiences, talents. Yes, not just hang-ups, talents. What you bring along. Any notion of practice that is solely based on deficiency will always, even if you fix that deficiency will always transport the very notion of a deficient self into the newly acquired state. Even if you fixed your deficiency, you will still, on the fixed level, still have a notion of a deficient self. The self will be deficient in other ways, but the implicit deficiency pattern will be transported to the new improved state. So, I guess, working from a deficiency position is always tricky because you will never really fix it. So I guess this is also something that needs to be challenged. I'm not really in, interested in an improved version of a kinjano because I know every improved version of a kinjano is going to continue suffering. Is that plausible? Improvements are attractive, isn't it? I like I like the idea. I have a list of wishes, and then I tick them gradually off, you know. And then the implicit promise is: once I'm at the bottom of my list, I'm happy. You know, the deficiencies are over, and then from then on, I can finally get on with my life. You know, thank you for this Buddhist bit, yeah. And then I finally do what I want to do. But that doesn't somehow seem to be the case. The you know, the, the vision of desire filling the deficiency in 
seems as soon as I have acquired that or achieved that or realized that, seems to move on one further. It seems the horizon recedes with my climbing up or climbing down or climbing wherever, but the horizon keeps receding while I move on trying to catch it. So I think at one stage our notion of growth and our notion of path and our notion of engaging with this process needs to go beyond me trying to fix hang-ups. I may have understood I have. Maybe you have them, maybe you don't. But there is something that can grow into a flourishing and an acknowledgement of a dimension of life that may not have been obvious when we started, that has to do with widening the gaze, yeah, widening the heart. And I don't know, for me it's more like, it's not a climbing up, it's more like a kind of deepening into, a kind of a, an acknowledgement of what already is here, what already is taking place. So, stage four does something of that. Stage four acknowledges a huge, really big picture in which my personal journey has a space and is an indispensable learning patch, but yet my personal story and my personal learning patch only reveals a pattern that is universal, that is big, that underpins the lives of everybody else. I once I can establish some confidence in the validity of this, my world becomes bigger. You know, I recognize myself in other beings a lot easier. I'm not so easily fooled by my fears or by my desires. And I begin to trust some of this process. I begin to trust, you know, the arising of my personally experienced ignorance leaves me increasingly trusting in an intelligence that is inherent in the bigger process of waking up. Yeah. This is more about more than about me trying to fix it. Yeah. Suddenly you begin to acknowledge, you know, I couldn't do a retreat with you here if I didn't trust that you're inherently intelligent, in- inherently good, inherently willing to wake up. I can't do that for you. I can rave about it. I can, you know, offer my two cents. I can help create a situation in which you feel safe enough to take risks, you know, on your inner edges. Uh, but I can't do that. It's not, it's not in my realm. I need to trust that we tap into something that is collectively available, individually accessible and collectively here, given. Yeah? And unless I do this... Um, I'm just peddling a method, you know. And you poor guys, you would have deserved the Buddha and all you got is a kinchino, yeah. But this is not how it feels. It feels like there is something that is actually possible for human beings. They're capable, you know. This is not part of a developmentally psychological model. Brahmaviharas are not. Refugees are not. You know, dependent arising is not. These are not things that you can actually find on a scale of developmental needs. You cannot define them in Rogerian or in uh, uh, Maslovian terms or whatever, uh, you know, grade you want to apply. Uh, This is inherent in human beings that they want to wake up. I believe firmly, deeply, committedly believe that. And I sense 
people touching into this. However confused the expression of that search may look like, I know somewhere in there is something trying to struggle into daylight. And I see that in myself, in my uh, contorted forms of trying to wake up and uh, find light. And I see that in others. And somehow that makes me more compassionate. Somehow that makes me more rich. Somehow that makes me more confident. That's what stage four is about. I guess some of this also influences my perspective of what we're doing here. Yeah. I, I'm aware that we sit here because uh, because there has been a tradition going on for quite some time. Human beings, some famous ones and most of them nameless ones, have, have helped to hand that down. You sit here because somewhere in the 8th century somebody in Sri Lanka sent money over to feed a couple of monks in Nalanda who lived from that, yeah? Somebody um, helped to print books. Somebody helped to, you know, build places where these books were kept. Somebody took the risk to travel with rucksacks full of manuscripts from India to China, and tried to spend literally hundreds of years translating. And when they finished, they started anew, because by that time their language had changed. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, Chinese translators translated first into a Taoist language, the Indian Buddhist teachings, and borrowed terms from Taoist tradition. And finally, when Buddhism was well enough spread and translated, it had gained its own language, and the original translations were deemed to be uh, lacking, so they needed to be translated in the new Buddhist language that had been coined by the very early translations. Yeah, So... You are here, and I am here, very clearly because of a, a lineage, because something has been handed down, because people have taken the serious, people have applied themselves, people have dedicated themselves to it, people have supported, practiced, given. And um, I'm grateful for this, you know, in a kind of deeply, equally personal and and impersonal way grateful that this exists I don't have to invent all this I don't have to actually figure all of this out myself there's teaching there there's a tradition there a written one and an oral one and I'm very grateful for that this is the best thing that has ever happened in my life I've experienced that east, I've experienced that west I've experienced it as a monk I've experienced it in genes yeah, I've experienced it under the guises of Japanese Zen. I've experienced it under the guises of Theravadan, uh, uh, Vinaya lineage. Um, I'm I'm very grateful for this, yeah. and I trust you're aware that this is happening because many many people have contributed to it for a long time. You may sit here because you think I just want to be a little more quiet, or I want to learn something about mindfulness. Don't give me Buddhism, or don't give me tradition, or don't give me history, or Asia, or culture. But you are part of history. You are part of a culture. You're at the, recip- you're at the receiving end of something. And it is here because of people like you 
because people were interested, people were listening, people were curious, people were suffering, people were willing to practice with the suffering in some way, other than running away, other than trying to forget it. Because somehow in there is a trust that this means something, that something can be learned in here by paying attention, by allowing in, and by turning my intelligence to it, that something can be understood Something can be outgrown. Something can be integrated, encompassed. And that is a powerful gesture. That is the gesture, if you want to have my two cents on this, that is the gesture which the Buddha says is what transforms suffering. It's the willingness to turn into it rather than turn away from it with our attention and our intelligence and our uh, distraction patterns to turn into it. And that is difficult. has always been difficult. It's heartening to read these old texts where people describe <laughs> their sense pleasures. You know, speak of the five strands of sense pleasures. You know. They sound almost ascetic by nowadays standards. You know, <laughs> but, but people have always sought comfort and safety by not acknowledging suffering, and it is the magic and the power and the empowering message of the Buddha that if we do turn into the suffering, if we're willing to be there when it happens and to, rather than run away or close our eyes, to acknowledge pain and to inquire into that pain, that by turning into it, we find the key of actually what makes human beings capable of liberation. It is that we get interested in our own experience in an, in an appropriate way, inquire and explore into the nature of our own experience. That is a powerful statement, yeah, 4th century BC. I do not know of any other teaching that is so empowering and saying, you do not need to petition gods, you do not need to sacrifice cows, you do not need to wait till um, somebody dies on the cross for you or till the Messiah comes, uh, you can, by investigating in appropriate way your own nature of experience, that by that you find the key to happiness, to understanding and freedom. This is a powerful message. I'd like to encourage you to support this, not just to think of what this does for you, but what can you do for it. Yeah, that would be my plea. Um, support it. Support the place here. If you think what we do here is useful to you, I appreciate if you support me. <laughs> if you think that this does something in your life, find ways to support that where you live. Yeah? <coughs> Maybe there are people meditating. Maybe there are people uh, running institutions, doing teachings. Um, you are probably the most privileged folk that have ever had access to this teaching on this globe. As far as I can make out, you know, so it may be safe when you were a contemporary of the Buddha and sat at his feet. Maybe that one would be a, even more privileged. But basically you have more access to teachings than any other generation has ever had. You know? Buddhism is only just starting to talk uh, amongst itself, so to speak. 
for centuries, the ones behind their mountains and the ones on their islands have not talked very much. So this is a fascinating time to be living in. So these teachings not just have not just landed here in the West, but they also have started to talk amongst each other. And all that richness is at your feet. If you bother to click a few clicks and download a few talks and read books and have texts, you know, in translation and in originals, possibly digitized, possibly even for free. Yeah. This is a, a privileged time like no other. Yeah. Fifty years ago you lived in East Tibet. Sixty years ago, you know, the Lama would come round twice a year, bless the new babies, give you some teachings, and maybe you would walk once to the monastery or twice a year when you could afford it, and that was it. Village monk would know a couple of chants in northeast Thailand. You would go to the place for Katina in autumn, for Vesak in May, for Magapuja in February, and maybe for a Dhamma talk on Asala in July. And that was it. You, know? you would be told to be moral, you would be told to be generous, you would be told to be uh, coming to the monastery on full moon days. Um, something like that. You'd be surprised with what little Buddhist teaching many traditional Buddhists live. With how... Uh, Many of those profound, explicitly useful and applicable teachings were not known, were not practiced, were not spread amongst people. And you guys are having access to this. You have the wits, you have the privileges, you have the background to make use of this. You have the luxury of just having this a few clicks away. So make use of this. It's not, it's not bad to have privileges. So... Consider how you can support some of this in the many ways. Join up, open meditation groups, read Buddhist books, go on retreats, support teachers and institutions. This uh, institution here is, is uh, not just grateful for your support, it is actually in need of the support. Yeah. Uh, I'm not asking you for a tip or a premium. I'm asking you for, if you like what I do, and what we do here together, then I'd appreciate if you make it possible for me to live in that way. Yeah, that's all. I don't have any great ambitions for uh, richness or uh, wealth in this life. Consider how you could contribute. It's as simple as that. Sometimes contribution consists in giving attention, asking questions, offering skills, showing interest, connecting with others, um, I'm not asking you to be evangelical or kind of run into the world with a burning cross and you know convert to heathen or so. That's not my notion. Uh, but uh, if this is any good, if this does you good, don't hide. Don't don't try to be clandestine about it. Don't be ashamed to say where it comes from or that you're interested in it. There are many ways you will probably be able to heighten the context in which you live, in which you work, by some of the stuff we do here. Anybody trying to cultivate mindfulness in a situation outside of a retreat is likely to heighten that context. <coughs> yeah. And make, make choices. You're a consumer. 
you're a citizen and these decisions and these choices they have an influence in the societies and in the places we live we work we spend our money in so Consider the big picture, not just the small picture. It's important to do psychological work. You've, you've heard me. I, I, I have come from a very long way of not wanting to do psychological work. Believe me, I have tried. Yeah? I have haughtily tried to uh, be, remain on the plane of pure spirituality and not have anything to do with the netherworlds of developmental psychology. I have come down from that plane. I believe there is a spiritual dimension and there is a psychological dimension. and The suffering in the psychological dimension is best addressed in that dimension rather than from some other plane. So I am a firm believer in the necessity of developmentally psychological steps in the path of meditation and liberation. But this is not the only plane. Just because it is indispensable doesn't mean it's the only relevant one. There is a bigger plane in which we are part of a planet, a society, a, a bigger sphere. Uh, call it spiritual, call it global. Um, I'm not so interested in the denomination, but I'm interested that it is bigger than your psychological story. Yeah? And let us acknowledge this, where we live, where we work, where we spend our money, where we live our relationships. Good, enough of me for tonight. Thank you for your attention. Let's be quiet for two minutes and recite.
ตาสังกัตเตนะเจตสายกัมมิสังวาริตวาวิอรรติตตตุติยังตตตติยังตตตจตุตังอิติโยธัมมะโดติริยังสาบัดดิสาบาตตตายะ ಭಗವಂತಾಂಗ್ಲೋಕಾಂಗ್ಮೇತಾ ವಿಹರಿತ್ತಿಯಾಂಗ್ತಿಯಾಂಗ್ತಿಯಾಂಗ್ತಿಯಾಂಗ್ತಿಯಾಂಗ್ತಿಯಾಂಗ್ತಿ